Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. And then we're going to be kind of in, the, in Genesis and then also in the, in the New Testament. Genesis chapter 1. If we could bring the house lights up, that would be great. Well, on December 7th of this past year, the Assembly Hall erupted in applause when Canada unanimously passed a law called C-4. That law went into effect this week. C-4, the Canadian law. Basically, the law makes it punishable up to five years in prison if you engage in any type of what they call conversion therapy. Now, you may ask, what's conversion therapy? What is that? Well, in the law, they describe conversion therapy. Conversion therapy means a practice, treatment, or service designed to, and listen to this, A, change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual, B, change a person's gender identity to cisgender, C, change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth, D, repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior. E, repress a person's non-cisgender gender identity. Or F, repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to the person at birth. Now, this may not make a lot of sense to you, but basically the law is ambiguous. The language is vague. And sadly, in Canada, it was promulgated by the conservatives. I was on a conference call Thursday with the pastor in Canada who was in prison during COVID. He's the pastor who kind of brought this whole thing up and asked. His, his leadership got this on John MacArthur's radar screen. And so James Coates, who's the pastor in Canada, basically told us in this conference call on Thursday that this potentially is not necessarily geared towards pastors in the pulpit, but it could be. Basically, it's, it's Canada's way of virtue signaling to the world that they are progressive. But in the preamble to the law, it says something very telling. In the preamble to this law, it clearly states this, that if heterosexuality, cisgender identity, and gender expressions that conform to the sex assigned to a person at birth those things are a myth and can cause great harm to society. And thinking that there's only one biological sex and thinking there's such a thing as heterosexual, cisgender norms is dangerous to society and it promulgates myths and stereotypes. So pastors today in Canada decided to go full bore and preach on this issue right out the chute. James Coates told us on the conference call, why wait five years? <laughs> the law passed this week, let's just go for it. So they're preaching on this today in Canada, God's definition of human sexuality. 
James Coates, the pastor in Canada, John MacArthur, you know who John MacArthur is. He's made a call out to American pastors to stand in solidarity with our Canadian brothers and sisters who are finding it very difficult to express Christian truth. Now, here's the reality. What happens in Canada may sound very far off to you. May sound dis- distant. You know, Canada's our neighbors to the north. We don't think much about Canada. What does that have to do with us? Well, let me just tell you this. The same worldview that passed those laws in Canada are the predominant worldview in our culture today. That same worldview is dominant in our culture today. We live in a godless, secular world that flagrantly rebels against God and His authoritative Word. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to see what does God have to say about human sexuality. This is more of a topical sermon as opposed to a verse-by-verse exposition, but we will be diving into some texts. But I want to address this topic this morning by addressing three major issues. Three major sections. So here's the first. What does God have to say about human sexuality and marriage? What does God have to say? That's the most important question. It doesn't matter what law Canada passes or what a Hollywood starlet posts on Instagram, or what a college professor may push in the classroom, or what a progressive politician says, it does not matter what those people say about the definition of marriage and human sexuality. The most important definition is what does God say about it? His voice is the one that matters most. So let's hear what God has to say. Let's go back to the very beginning. This may seem very basic, but your children and grandchildren are growing up in a world of confusion. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. God's plan from the very beginning was to have two Distinct biological sexes. Not just genders, but two distinct biological sexes, male and female. So that those two would come together in a covenant lifelong marriage. Notice in your Bible, they're called male and female. Male and female. That denotes anatomy and sexuality. I don't want you to get lost in the the forest for the trees here. So as Bible-believing evangelical Christians, we need to understand from the very beginning, God's plan was to create male and female, biological male, biological female, 
in His image, not multiple different genders, but two distinct biological sexes, male and female, that are meant to complement each other in covenant marriage. That's creation. Let's talk about marriage, because when God created Adam and Eve, God, I don't know if you know this, but God performed the first marriage. I've officiated a lot of marriages, and um, I, I tell the couple when I, when I meet with them, yes, I'm officiating your marriage, but God's the one that's marrying you. And so let's look at this in Genesis chapter 2, 18 through 25. Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a, him a helper fit for him. <coughs> now, out of, excuse me, out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up in his place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. In my years as pastors, I've had couples come to me that were living together before marriage and say, why do I, why do I have to have a piece of paper from the government to prove that I'm married? What's the big deal about marriage? Why can't we just live together? Why do we have to go through all this ceremony? Why can't we just live together and call it good? How, how do we deal with the so-called gay marriage? The issue of, of two people of the same gender being married. How do we as a church address these cultural issues? And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a definition of marriage. This is not my definition. This is God's definition. So what is marriage? Okay, again, you may think, Pastor Sean, you're being so basic. You're being so elementary. And sadly, that's the point. In today's culture, I have to be basic and elementary to go back to what God says because there's so much confusion. What is marriage? Marriage is a lifelong and sacred covenantal bond between one man and one woman instituted and defined by God alone. Let me just repeat that. It's lifelong. It's a sacred covenant between one man and one woman instituted by God and defined by God alone. And so our culture doesn't quite understand this. Do we have the right to redefine marriage any way we see fit? Can we override God and His sovereignty, what He's done in creation by creating one man and one woman and how He's defined marriage? Do we have any right whatsoever to override what God has said? Absolutely not. But we live in a culture that has no care for what God has sovereignly ordained. Now, there's a lot of things that can be said from this passage about marriage. But I want to just focus on one key truth. 
One of the key truths from this passage is that marriage is sacred. Marriage is sacred. I, I love this passage of Scripture because I want you to, to understand that God is the one that performs the first marriage ceremony. So Adam and the, basically God says it's not good for Adam to be alone. I'll make a, suitor help, a, help, a helper suitable for him. And then God takes Adam to this very painful naming exercise to name the, the animals. Duckbill platypus comes by. That's a weird looking thing. Giraffe comes by. I'll call that giraffe. Harry orangutan comes by. Close, but no cigar. All these different animals. And Adam's like, this ain't going to do, God. These, these, are diff- these are animals. These, these aren't things like me. And then what does God do? God puts Adam into a deep sleep. And then if you look at verse 22, the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Did you catch it? God brought her to the man. Picture it this way. God walks Eve down the aisle. God walks Eve down the aisle and presents her to Adam, who has gone through this naming exercise. And then what you have in the Bible is the very first eruption of poetry ever in the history of the world. Let me give you the Hebrew translation of this at last. Woohoo! Literally, that's what it is. Woohoo! This at last! Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. At last, at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. They're equal. It's bone of my bone, but she's, she's not a different species. She's not an ape. She's not a giraffe. She's a human being, but she's also very different. She's a woman. She shall be called woman woman because she was taken out of man it's very significant that adam names her woman she shall be called woman when adam names eve it shows from the very beginning god's design in a marriage is for the man to be the spiritual leader doesn't mean that he's basically is abusive or that he is dominating but it does mean that god's order of creation is that the husband be the spiritual leader of the family and so what we need to remember here is that God is the one that sets the rules. It is a sacred union. A sacred union. Now, I'm going to say something that's controversial. We may, be cut, get, we may already be cut off of Facebook, I don't know, or YouTube. Hear me very clearly. If God defines marriage between one man and one woman, there is no such thing as same-sex marriage. It's an oxymoron. You cannot put same sex in front of the word marriage and have it be a marriage. It's not a marriage. God defines marriage as between one man and one woman. And any definition that deviates from that is not a biblical definition of marriage. So please, be careful how you speak. I don't use the word same-sex marriage. I use the term so-called same-sex marriage. I know it's a semantic ploy, but I do not want to give in to the culture who's already basically seeded ground that says this is marriage. Now, yes, Obergefell and Hodges, which came out in 2015 with the Supreme Court case, they made it legal across the land. 
Again, it doesn't matter what governments or cultures or all that, all that stuff happens. What, what matters is what God says about it. And, and some of you will say, well, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. I'm just going to stick with what Jesus said. Well, Jesus did not specifically address homosexuality, but I want you to notice what Jesus said in Matthew 19, 4-6. Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Notice what Jesus says there. Have you not read? What does Jesus appeal to? The written scriptures. Jesus doesn't appeal to popular opinion or to the, to the opinion polls or, or to anything else. He says, have you not read? I'm going all the way back to the written scriptures in Genesis that we just read. And then also in that passage of scripture, Jesus says, from the beginning. Have you not read from the beginning? In other words, this is God's ordained plan from the beginning. One man, one woman, created in the image of God, coming together in a lifelong covenant marriage. This is written, Jesus says, in the Scriptures. So Jesus has the highest value of the authority of Scriptures. And then he says, this is from the beginning. And then he talks about the permanence, the sacredness of marriage. What God has joined together, let not man separate. So God sets the rules. God defines the terms. Now this puts us in the crosshairs of culture and we need to be very careful because our culture does not want to hear this. They don't want to submit to an authority other than themselves. They don't want to submit to what God says. And we're bombarded every day with different voices from media, culture, telling us this. You Bible-believing evangelical Christians are bigoted, you're hateful, you're narrow-minded, and you need to be silent. Don't be so hateful. And we need to realize that that's going to happen. Whether or not a culture, or whether or not even a couple understands it when they get married... Marriage is a covenantal bond between one man and one woman for a lifetime instituted and defined by God. It's sacred, and he defines the, two, the, the, the terms. But I want you to notice something in verse 24. Adam was speaking there, because it's, it's put off in poetry. Woo-hoo, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she should be called woman. Okay, now in verse 24, God speaks. God gets the final word, and God is the one that, again, defines marriage under his authority. It's not an opinion. It's God. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God defined it from the beginning in the written scriptures. Jesus appeals to the written scriptures and says from the beginning this is how God has ordained it. And so, if we're going to follow the example of Jesus our Lord, we would be wise to define marriage 
and human sexuality the way that God himself defines it from the very beginning in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2. So that's the first issue for this morning. How does God define it? Who sets the rules? What does God have to say? God is the one that is ordaining and defining marriage. Now, let's explore the second issue this morning. How can we break God's ordained plan for marriage and human sexuality? How can you break that plan? How can you go against that plan? How can you sin against that? What is sin against God's plan? Back in January of 2019, former president of the Southern Baptist Convention, J.D. Greer, preached a series of sermons from the book of Romans. And in Romans chapter 1, which deals with the issue of homosexuality, he said this, and it got him into a lot of hot water. He said, quote, We ought to whisper about what the Bible whispers about, and we ought to shout about what it shouts about. The Bible appears more to whisper when it comes to sexual sin compared to its shouts about materialism and religious pride. This is the president of our Southern Baptist Convention saying the Bible whispers about sexual sin. Sadly, our current president, Ed Litton, this is a discussion for another time, has blatantly, patently plagiarized J.D. Greer plagiarized his sermons. You can go on YouTube and see these sermons side by side. He said the same thing, plagiarizing J.D. Greer. So the past president of the Southern Baptist Convention, the current president of the Southern Baptist Convention have both said publicly that the Bible whispers about sexual sin. So let me just ask the question, does the Bible whisper about sexual sin? Or does it shout? Well, let's go to the New Testament and see a very important passage of Scripture from Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So let me invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's start in verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul gives a list here of sins that prevent a person from entering heaven. And obviously not all of these sins are sexual sins, but there are some, and this is the first one that's listed. Neither the sexually immoral. That Greek word is the word porneia. We get our word porn or pornography from that. Older translations use the term fornication. Any type of sex between boyfriend, girlfriend, any type of premarital sex with a person that's not your covenant spouse through the bonds of marriage is sexual immorality. And then he talks about idolatry, talks about adultery. Now, adultery is breaking the marriage covenant. 
when you're already married. So a married person going outside the marriage covenant. And then he talks about men who practice homosexuality. I'm not going to go into the detail, but there are two Greek words that are used there that very clearly define what this issue is. So, so does the Bible speak out against sexual immorality? Yes. Does the Bible shout about adultery? Yes. Does the Bible shout about homosexual behavior? Yes. Leviticus 18.22 You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. Romans chapter 1, 26-28 For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what not ought to be done. There's a lot that can be said about first or about Romans chapter 1. The Bible clearly teaches that any type of homosexual behavior is sin. There's an argument going on in conservative evangelical churches right now where some people are saying that it's okay to have same-sex attraction. That's not sin as long as you don't act out upon it. But let me ask you a question. Are there such things as sins of your heart and mind that you never act out upon? Okay, let's say that a guy comes to me and says, I'm having same-sex attraction. And I go to him, I say, okay, that's fine as long as you don't act out on it. What happens if a heterosexual guy comes to me and says, man, there's, somebody, there's, a, there's another lady in the church that I have my eyes set on, and I'm kind of lusting after her. I have an opposite-sex attraction. What, what, what I say to him, well, that's okay as long as you don't act out on it. I wouldn't say that to either one of them. Because what does Jesus say? In Matthew 5, 27-28, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So there is, are, are, are sinful desires, heterosexual, homosexual, any type of ungodly, unscriptural desire is sinful. And Paul says here that God gave them up. God gave them up to a depraved mind, to a debased mind. If you want to know where our culture is today, read Romans 1. Our culture has been given over to a depraved mind. That's why everybody's insane. That's why our culture's insane. That's why you can't rationalize or you can't logically argue with people today because their minds have been given over to depravity. And God has allowed it to happen. Billy Graham said this many years ago before he died. If God doesn't do something quick to judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. That's Billy Graham. We're living in a culture of a depraved mind, a debased mind, a people that can't think straight. 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 10. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, 
for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Again, a list of a bunch of different sins there, but Paul says these are all contrary to sound doctrine. They're, they're against what the Bible teaches. Okay, let's just talk about transgenderism for a moment. Because Paul did not address necessarily transgenderism, but there's a lot of confusion today. So here's where this conversion therapy law goes into effect in Canada. Okay, here, here's where it makes it very difficult. Let's say you're in Canada and you have a nine-year-old boy that likes to play with dolls and wear makeup and wear girls' clothes. And I'm your pastor and you come to me and say, I need help to help my child figure out what's going on here because it doesn't seem right. If I were to counsel you as a parent to steer that child towards heterosexual manhood for a little boy, I could be viewed as violating the conversion theory. I'm trying to convert him towards what he's not. I'm trying to make him what he's not. And so I could possibly be imprisoned or whatever. And so not just pastors, but parents are going to really struggle in Canada with any type of discipleship, any type of counseling, that you try to counsel a person away from homosexuality, away from sex change at early ages, you could be viewed as harmful or dangerous or um, bigoted. There's a book written right now for four-year-olds. I don't know if you've ever read it. You probably haven't. Hopefully it's not in our library, but it's called The Gender Fairy for four-year-olds. And it states this, only you determine whether you're a boy or a girl. No one can tell you. This may sound crass, but let me say it. 150 years ago, if a man said he felt like a woman trapped in a man's body, he would be considered to have psychological problems. It would be addressed as a mental illness. Back in the fall of 2020, then candidate Biden now our president, said in a town hall that he would fight for the rights of eight-year-olds to become transgender. Joe Biden took a question from the mother of an eight-year-old transgender girl who cited several of the Trump administration's anti-transgender policies, including the ban on trans people serving openly in the military, and then she asked Biden how he would protect the lives and rights of LGBTQ people. And this is what Joe Biden said. I will flat out just change the law, eliminate those executive orders. There should be zero discrimination. I'm not trying to be political, but our president's in favor of eight-year-olds having a say in how they should have their view of, of transgenderism. Deuteronomy 22.5. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Again, you may be saying, well, Pastor Sean, you're focusing on Old Testament laws. You're focusing on Paul. Paul was a meanie, and the Old Testament's just the Old Testament. Let's get back to Jesus. Jesus is nice. Jesus doesn't address these things. Jesus was pro-everything. Are you so sure about that? Mark 7, 21-23. This is Jesus. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within 
and they defile a person. Okay, so the first issue we've addressed this morning is what does God say about marriage and gender and sexuality? Second is how do we break that? Paul lists a bunch of different sins there, but I really want to give us hope this morning, and let's, let's ask the third question. How does God's grace give us power to live according to God's plan for marriage and human sexuality? How does God's grace give us power to live according to that? We know what the standard is. We know what the sin is. The question is, okay, where does grace come into this? Well, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. After Paul lists all those sins, notice what he says in verse 11. And such were some of you. Were. That's a tense in the original language that meant their ongoing activity. In other words, Paul goes right to their identity. This is who you were in your identity. And notice that Paul lists more nouns than he does verbs. He doesn't list the sins, per se, as verbs. He lists the nouns, an idolater an adulterer, men who practice homosexuality, a thief. He doesn't list verbs, he lists nouns. And I think the reason he does that was to say, this was the identity and core of who you were. This is who you were wrapped up in being. The Corinthians were unclean. They were corrupt. They were sinners. This is what you were. But then look at the middle of verse 11. But, but, very strong in the original language, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul lists three things there that have happened. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Let me just say this. Jesus Christ came to save sinners. There is no sin so grievous that Jesus cannot die for it and cannot cleanse you from that. What did Jesus say in Luke 5.32? I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Don't ever think that you're so far gone that Jesus can't save you. There's no sin so grievous or so horrendous that Jesus can't grab you out of that and save you. Because the Corinthians were all that. We've been washed. This refers to the regeneration, the fact that God has cleansed us from the inside. He's made us new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old's passed away. Behold, the new has come. Titus 3, 4-5 But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared... He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. We've been washed. You've been internally cleansed. You've been transformed from the inside out. You're no longer the same person. That's what you were, Paul says. And not only that, he says, you were sanctified. You were set apart as holy. You were made a saint. You were cleansed. You were set apart. This carries the idea that we have fellowship with God. We're holy. And then we've been justified. We've been declared forever not guilty before the very throne of God. We have the righteousness of Christ credited to us so that we're forever 
accepted before God's throne. And the way it's worded here in the original language is these things happened to you at a point in time and they were definitive. They were instantaneous. And God is the one that did those to you. This is what you were. This was your identity before. But something transformative has happened. You've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified. You know what the Bible calls this? Conversion. Biblical conversion. It's interesting they use the term conversion therapy. What does conversion mean in the Bible? It means to undergo a radical change from the inside out where God has changed you. He's washed you. He's cleansed you. You've been converted. You've been changed. You're no longer the same person. So here's the point that we need to be very careful that we understand this. If you claim to be a Christian and you continue to live in unrepentant, habitual sins like these that define you, you need to ask yourself, has this truly happened to you? Have you been changed? Have you been transformed? You see, a life of transformation results in obedience. You can't say I'm a Christian and continue to live in habitual sin. It's impossible. Paul says this is what you were. You've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified. 1 John 5, 2-3, By this we know the We love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Now here's where it gets very difficult, and this is where I need to give a lot of pastoral care and understanding. Those that are gripped in sexual sins are sometimes so enmeshed and enslaved in those sins, it gets very difficult for them to get out. I've talked to parents whose children have become homosexual and the difficulty it is for them to understand the, the depth. So see, see, here's the thing. Sexual sins are like no other sin. Because they go to the core of your identity and they mesh you with another person. So to to separate yourself out of sexual sin is very painful. And it's very difficult. And so how do we fight that sin? How do you repent? How do you get out of it? Well, let's keep reading. Let's go down to verse 18. What does Paul say? He's still talking about sexual sin here. Verse 18, flee. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Paul gives two commands here. The first is flee. Run. Run as far away as you can. Flee. Keep on fleeing. 
1 Thessalonians 4, 3-5, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Abstain. Flee. The second command is at the very end. Glorify. Glorify God in your body. Sexual sins go to the heart of a person like no other sin. They're deeply entrenched. And to get out of those types of sins is very painful because it goes right into those identity issues. But Paul gives some motivations here. Paul gives some reasons here why we can flee and why we can glorify. Number one, he says, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's within you? The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. You would think it very shocking to commit sexual sin on this stage in the sanctuary here in the church. You'd say, that's shocking, Pastor Sean. But in essence, the Bible says we're the sanctuary wherever we go because the Holy Spirit lives in us. He dwells in us. And then Paul also says, as a Christian, you belong to God. You belong to God. Do you not know that your body is a temple, the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Christians, we need to hear this. We're not our own. You belong to God. So a Christian can't say, I have the right to do whatever I want with my body because after all, it's my body. No, you can't say that. You're not your own. Why are you not your own? Well, here's the last thing Paul says. You're not your own, not only because the Holy Spirit lives in you, but you're not your own because you were bought. You were bought with a price. And what's the price? The precious blood of Christ. 1 Peter 1, 18-19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You're not your own. Jesus paid for you with his body and blood. He's given the Holy Spirit to live within you. So therefore, flee and glorify God in your body. When I have counseled people that are in sexual sin, oftentimes I'll ask the very, I'll I'll cut right to the chase. Because you can beat around the bush. And I'll just ask this one question. If they claim to be a Christian, I'll ask this one question. Is what you're doing glorifying to God? Is what you're doing glorifying to God? Does it bring glory and honor to God? The sad thing is when they look me in the eye and say, no, but I'm going to do it anyway. 1 Corinthians 10.31 So whether you eat or drink, Or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything to the glory of God. 
Colossians 3.17, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. We need to stand strong as a church family and as families and as individuals on God's definition of marriage. And we need to remember that everything we do is to His glory alone. And when you live for the glory of God, there's going to be pushback. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be opposition. There'll be labeling. There'll be mischaracterizations. But here's the, here's the issue. On that final day, you're not going to stand before a Hollywood starlet in her Instagram. You're not going to stand before the Supreme Court. You're not going to stand before a Canadian official. You're not going to stand before the President of the United States. You're not going to stand before a congressman or your college professor or or, or anybody. The only person you're going to stand before is the living God. And that's who matters the most. So who cares what the world says? They are passing away. What matters is what the living God says and who we'll stand before. And I want us as a church family and I want you as individuals and you as families to hear your Heavenly Father say, when it comes that time, well done, my good and faithful servant. You were faithful to the truth. You were faithful to my definition of marriage. You were faithful, faithful, faithful. We're going to stand before God alone. May we all be found faithful. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And kind of a difficult message. It's been a little bit harsh, maybe. Pretty blunt. But Lord, I don't want to mess around. There's too much confusion. There's too much rebellion. And if a pastor can't stand up and preach, thus saith the Lord, then what am I doing? Father, we need to hear these truths and not just hear them, but obey them. So Lord, would you give us grace upon grace to walk in the truth? Lord, I can't help but know, I don't know, but I can guess, in a, in a church this size, in a room this big, that there are some that may be struggling with sexual sin right now, even as I speak, that are living in disobedience, living in open rebellion of you. Would you give them grace to repent? Would you give them hope that they can be freed? Would you give them joy of the Lord as their salvation to know that they can walk in holiness? Lord, there may be some here in this room whose children are wayward that are making really bad decisions in lifestyles that are against your word. And it's breaking hearts of a lot of moms and grandmas and dads and grandfathers in this room. Lord, I pray for those children even if they're adult, those adult children, that you would bring them to repentance. Lord, our only hope is you. 
we look at the confusion, we look at the rebellion, and all we can do is get on our knees and just plead. Father, would you, would you do a work? Would you spare us as America? Would you protect us? Protect our children. Father, we have such precious children in this church. I look around and see the young families that you blessed us with. And I can't imagine what it would be like to raise children in a culture like this. Lord, give them grace upon grace as parents to raise their children in the Lord. Lord, put a hedge of protection around our children. Help us to love these children, teach these children, disciple these children. Lord, protect them from evil. Protect them from bad choices. Protect their minds from the world. Protect their eyes from the world. Lord, help us as a church to be salt and light. Lord, we never want to come across as judgmental or angry. We want to speak the truth in love. We want to warn with tears. But Father, there is a line in the sand that we can't cross. So Lord, what I'm just asking is we need you. Desperately. Desperately, Lord. We love you, we honor you. We trust you. It's in your name that we pray these things, Lord. Amen.